Today's reading is Psalms 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. The word of the Lord. Yeah, you know it's like a summer heat wave uh, when I have just let myself go completely. I've gone the Matt Anderson route of a dress shirt, no tie, no jacket. So I apologize for my slovenly appearance this morning. But, um, but even I have to relent to the, it's not, you know, the, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. That's what I would say. All right. So you're meeting someone that you don't know and we'll get, what's your name out of the way? What is like the most common next question that you will ask them? What do you do? In other words, uh, what's your job? What do you do for work? And it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that so much of our lives, our identity, you know, who we are, what we want to know about people is defined by work. And I mean, this starts at an early age. We ask kids, you know, when they reach a certain age, what do you want to be when you grow up? Meaning, what job do you want to do when you grow up? And you go to college, and every college kid's favorite question is, what's your major? Paul, what are you majoring in? Which means, what field do you want to work in eventually? Paul, what are you majoring in? Marketing. Okay, yeah, we know what you're going to do. Marketing, baby. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, every college kid you ask, it's like, okay. I majored in history, and so when people ask me what I wanted to do, that was a really awkward conversation. (laughs) Be a historian? No, I did not want to be a historian. Tell you about the past? Um, I didn't have a good answer for that question. But even as you get older... Your, your identity is tied up in your relationship to work. I'm retired. Retired from what? Retired from work. And then we can ask, well, what did you do before you retired? Work is just at the center of, of, of kind of how people understand who we are in the world. And it raises this question is, what is it about work that makes it occupy? It's not just such a central place in the American psyche, though I think we have a particular kind of relationship to work in this country, but even in, in the human experience. And there's the, you know, obvious answer that work is important because, well, you know, someone's got to work if if we're going to provide for our basic human needs, for food and and, and for shelter. Um, You know, we are going to need someone to do some work. And and if we're going to build a society and a civilization, you know, that there's got to be people working. Someone's got to, you know, till the ground and build the buildings and raise the children and care for the sick and and sew the clothes. And someone's got to find ways to do that better and faster and more efficiently. And when you read scripture, you'll see that, that from the beginning, human beings and work are, are related. From the very first pages of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, work actually features really prominently. God makes human beings and says, you know, you will have dominion over this creation. And in Genesis 2, it talks about um, our first parents being placed in Eden to guard and to garden. So work is, is right there. It's not a product of a fallen world. It's built into the very fabric of creation. 
But for all of this, you know, high-minded, you know, highfalutin theological talk about the God-given nature of work, you know, that, that we were created in some way to work, there is the very earthbound reality that oftentimes work stinks. We've all had bad jobs, worked bad hours, had bad bosses. I mean, when I say, think about your worst job, it's probably not too hard to have at least one example pop into your mind. One summer I worked in college, one summer in college I worked as a temp at uh, Wells Fargo in the mortgage underwriting department, so I wasn't like in a bank branch, I was in an office building in downtown Minneapolis. And these were the glory days, you know, circa 2003, uh, the housing bubble was just far off in the distance, and so there was a lot of work to do. Um, if you were a mortgage underwriter in those days. You know, those were the glorious days of the ninja loans. No income, no job, no assets. You know, and like you could, you could if you saw the big short and the character down in Miami, Florida, what's his name from the new girl? Finch? What? What? Schmidt, Schmidt. He, that's one of the best acting roles I've ever seen is Schmidt in the big short. Like, those were the days, the glory days, if anyone could just sort of get a, a mortgage. And so we had lots of work to do down at Wells Fargo, but I was not, like, doing any mortgage processing. I, was the, I worked in the sort of the equivalent of the mailroom of the floor I was on, and one of my jobs was to print thousands of copies every day of reports to give to these mortgage underwriters or processors so that they could see the status of all their various accounts that they were working on. You know, see what closing date is coming up soon, what still needs an appraisal. You know, I had all of these reports that I printed out every single day, spent hours doing, collating, stapling, and then placing in their mailboxes. And 99 times out of 100, the processor would walk by, they'd take that paper, and they'd throw it immediately in the recycling. I mean, right in front of my face, too. Like, they could not have cared less. And I even highlighted their name to make sure they could see which report was there. And they just threw it in, in, they threw it in the recycling bin. So this was like literally I am doing something of no value in the world. And then there was even one day one of my uh, fellow temps um, who worked on the other side of the floor said, uh, Francis, he said, Dave, I got to go do something for like an hour. Can you cover for me? And I was like, of course, Francis, I'll help you out. Francis never returned to work. <laughs> I'm still waiting on Francis to come back. Um, and, you know, every day I had that experience that summer, getting up in the morning, hopping on the, the express bus downtown, and then, you know, you're with these hordes of other people coming in at 8, 8.30 in the morning. You're taking the escalators up. You feel like just a drone, a cog in this machine. And I'm thinking, how am I going to make it through the next nine hours of the day? That's work. And so this summer, we're doing this sermon series called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And, and, and we're working through Psalms 120 through 134. These are called the Songs of Ascent. And we're reading them with Eugene Peterson and looking what they have to teach us about what it means to be a disciple. A, a, someone following Jesus on our way to God. And, and Peterson says, and we see all of these different aspects of, of following Christ in each and every one of these psalms. And each one of them has a great theme. And Psalm 127, it's a song about work, about the right way to work and the wrong way. And first, just a word about what's kind of happening in this psalm. And so if, um, if you look at the work that's being described here, the work of building houses and guarding a, a city, these are things associated with Jerusalem, which is fitting because that's where the, the pilgrims were headed as they were singing this song. 
And it's a psalm that if you read it in your Bible, it says a song, a song of a sense of Solomon. So it's associated with and attributed to King Solomon, who of all the kings in the Bible was known for being a builder. Solomon built stuff. He built a temple for the Lord. He spent a lot more time and effort and energy building a palace for himself and his wives and his concubines. And his approach to work actually is what led to this kingdom, this united kingdom of Israel, dissolving into a northern and southern kingdom after his death. Because Solomon, when it came to work, he made people work hard. He made them work so hard, in fact. He was such a a relentless taskmaster that when he died, uh, the representatives of the northern tribes of Israel came to his son, and, and they said, your father made us work too hard. We can't work that hard anymore. We need to renegotiate this working relationship, you know, between sort of labor and management. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he said, they're just trying to take advantage of me. They think I'm young and soft and naive and stupid. And so he said, you thought, Solomon, my dad made you work hard? You ain't seen nothing yet. And so he tried to make them work even harder, and they rebelled against him, and the kingdom was, was split in two, never to be joined again. And so the kingdom of Israel, when you talk about work, And the problems with work, the very kingdom of Israel split over work. And so we think about work, it's important to set it in the right framework, to get it right, to think about it in the right way. Now, the wrong way to think about work, there's a couple dimensions of it. And one of the wrong ways to think about work, and and they both have one thing in common, though, and that's that they both leave God out of the equation. And, And there's a way that looks at work that assumes that it's up to us alone to secure everything we need for ourselves. And this is the way of what Psalm 127 calls anxious toil. That's the way of the greatest work project in the ancient world that's uh, talked about in Scripture, the building of this tower, the Tower of Babel. There was an effort to all the people of the world getting together, build this tower to heaven, and the reason they're doing it most tellingly is to make a name for themselves. That was their motivation. We want to make a name for ourselves. And so that's the one great temptation of work is to deify it, right? Make it our be-all and our end-all. And we do that, you know, we work more and more hours. Don't take any time off. Don't take vacation, you know, first one in, last to leave. And then we brag about it or we feel puffed up with pride at the fact And, you know, we all carry around these communication devices in our pockets that mean that we are perpetually connected to work. Work follows us around now. You can never truly, you know, punch out. And we hear that, and I think we step back objectively, and we go, yeah, we're too much, too connected, can't turn off, can't disconnect. But we still keep doing it, even though we know that it's crazy and it's soul-sucking. And so why do we do this? Why do we keep this unhealthy relationship with work? And I I think maybe it's this desire to make a name for ourselves that that we worry, well, what will happen if if I stop working? What will that say about me, about my value as a human being, about my usefulness in the world? And if you think about it, in a purely secular world, without reference to God at all, our work is one of the few things, not the only thing, but one of the very few things that can prove to the rest of the world and probably more importantly, prove to ourselves that we matter, that we're somebody, that we have value and significance. You know, look at how much money I make. That's a good measure of my value to this society. Look at my, you know, title. 
Look at my career. Isn't that something that's respectable, something that matters, something that gives me value? And then there's the, 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 the perverse inverse of that. When we accept work without reference to God, when we understand work without reference to God, then our work can also demonstrate to this world how much we don't matter, especially when you don't make much money, especially when you don't have a job that doesn't have any cachet or dignity, isn't some great respectable career. What does that message send if you do that to the rest of the world? Eh, a person's not that important. They don't matter that much. And so there's this babble temptation to, to deify work, to imbue it with all of this meaning and significance, to work without reference to God, to try to make a name for ourselves. And that's what Psalm 127 is talking about when it talks about anxious toil. But there's another way you could read this psalm and say, well, I guess actually I don't need to do any work at all. Lord's going to build the house. The Lord's going to watch over the city, and so it doesn't matter what I do, and so I'm not going to work. I'm going to disconnect. And in the early, uh, the, the early years of the church in the New Testament era, this, this attitude towards work, sort of disengaging from it because God's got this, was common enough that St. That Paul had to address it in one of his early letters to second, uh, the letter uh, of 2 Thessalonians. And so people were expecting the imminent return of Christ, they said, Jesus is coming back soon, so I don't need to work. Why work? Why bother? Why build? Why save? Why, why put all this effort and energy in? Jesus is going to come back, and all of this is just going to get wiped away. And so Paul learns about this, that this attitude has taken hold in one of his churches, and so he writes this, and, and this comes from the message translation of Second Thessalonians. But Paul writes, he says, we're getting reports that a bunch of lazy good-for-nothings are taking advantage of you. This must not be tolerated. We command them to get to work immediately, no excuses, no arguments, and earn their own keep. Friends, don't slack off in doing your duty. You know, when I think about work, I tend to think about it, you know, in terms of the unhealthy attitude or the wrong attitude. I tend to go towards the workaholism pull. That's what I think the, the bigger temptation and problem is. But there's also a temptation in our culture towards sloth. I mean, you look at the st statistics, for various reasons, more and more, especially men of prime working age, aren't a part of the labor force. And this isn't because they can't find jobs, it's because they don't want them. And, and from my reading, what they're doing, instead of, you know, filling these hours of their life with work, they're playing video games, more and more time playing video games. That's basically what supplanted work in their lives. And, and so this is the great temptation to drop out. And for whatever reason, more and more people are choosing to drop out. And it's dangerous because when we drop out of this world of work, we, we start to get disconnected from this sort of broader social project that's taking place. And when communities are filled with people who've dropped out, they start to disintegrate. And so the problem with work without reference to God is that it leaves us in this kind of state of, of limbo. Either we're, we're tempted by workaholism that surrounds us, and, it's, and it really predominates, you know, kind of urbane, educated circles like many of us in this congregation would find ourselves in. And the best, cult, the, the best that our culture can do with, a, uh, with reference to workaholism is try to give us this always unattainable, you know, vision of work-life balance. If we can just get work-life balance, that's, that's the best that it can offer us. But then there's the downscale uh, temptation to drop out of the project altogether. If God's got this, then why work? And if he doesn't, who cares? You know, it's better to play Fortnite 
for 12 hours a day than to do some menial job where you make nine bucks an hour. But these, thankfully, thank God, are not our only options. There's a better way to work, a better way to think about work, and we see that in Psalm 127. Eugene Peterson says, the main difference between Christians and others is that we take God seriously, and they do not. We really do believe that He is the central reality of all existence. We really do pay attention to what He is and what He does. We really do order our lives in response to that reality and not some other. Paying attention to God involves a realization that God works. The whole premise of Psalm 127 is that God is a God who works. I mean, it starts with these words, unless the Lord builds the house, unless God watches over the city. And that word unless, it presupposes that God works. God guards and God builds. And so across the pages of Scripture, we see that God is a God who works, a God who does stuff. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a a working word, a making word. We're here because God worked, and then God rested. And God works with Abraham, calling him, blessing him, showing him a land of promise that would be filled with his descendants. God worked with the Israelites, rescuing them from slavery and guiding them in the wilderness. He worked with them as they entered the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And and, and God worked by becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, who was himself a craftsman, the carpenter's son. And he worked out our salvation on the cross. And then it was at work when the Spirit came and filled the disciples and sent them out to do the work of the kingdom in the world. And so if we understand anything about the God of Scripture, it's that God is a God who works. And here's what that means, according to Peterson. He says, the foundational truth is that work is good. If God does it, it must be all right. Work has dignity. There can be nothing degrading about work if God works. Work has purpose. There can be nothing futile about work if God works. And so Psalm 127, it teaches us to have this perspective about work, that work is good, it has dignity, it's purposeful. It's just sometimes... It takes work to uncover these truths about our own, our own work, the goodness, the dignity, the decency of making photocopies in downtown Minneapolis, you know, that there's dignity in changing diapers or cleaning bedpans, that there's purpose in, you know, punching the clock for a double shift, that it's good to be the caretaker of someone or to answer phones or go to meetings or serve a cup of coffee, to make a schedule to manage people. Peterson says the curse of some people's lives is not work as such, but senseless work, vain work, futile work, work that takes place apart from God, work that ignores that if Christian discipleship by orienting us in God's work and setting us in the mainstream of what God is already doing, it it frees us from the compulsiveness of work. And so the invitation Christians have is to participate in the work that God is already doing in the world in the midst of our own work. To find our work in the work that God already has going on. And God's big work, God's great work, is to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus Christ. That's huge work. But when we're attentive to God, attentive to his word and spirit, speaking in the midst of his community, I truly believe that no matter what our work is, 
our job is, we can all find goodness, dignity, and purpose in our work. And when we understand that, work itself can go from being anxious toil to a means of grace. And the example that the, the psalm gives of what this looks like, what this kind of attitude and perspective and approach to work looks like comes in verse 3, where the psalm goes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the uh, womb a reward. And lots of scholars of a certain period thought, well, these sort of, the first two verses of the psalm were one thing, and then there were these other, you know, verses three, four, five floating around about kids, and someone just eventually sort of stuck them together, and they don't really have much to do with one another. And on the surface, that makes sense. One's about, hey, you know, don't, if your work doesn't matter unless God is a part of it, and then here's this thing about kids, but actually, it makes sense. Because procreation is this very uh, pregnant um, pun intended, metaphor for what participation in God, what God's ongoing work in the world looks like. Think about the kind of work that procreation is. Do humans have a role in producing and rearing children? Absolutely, we do. But do we make the baby in the sense that like we're responsible for everything sort of coming together in a particular way? No. The life growing in the womb, it, it's self-directed. And when the child is born, parents and, and the broader community around that child have a massive role for caring for and raising the child. But that child's growth and development is also self-directed. Kid's going to get bigger, kid's going to mature, things are going to happen whether we do something or not. And so our job is to facilitate and enrich a growth process that naturally wants to take place. That's why that metaphor is so apt, that God is already at work in the world to bring forth certain things. And so just like child rearing, is it, the growth of children, the birth of children, it's self-directed, it's going towards an end. Our job is to just sort of not get in the way of that and help facilitate that in the healthiest way possible. And so beyond being self-directed, moving, growing, dynamic, and oriented towards life, God's work is also, we see in, in, in the metaphor of children, it's at its core, it's relational. Work is about being relational. If we talk about God's big work in the world, it's reconciliation. Reconciliation is a relationship word. And so children and family are an apt metaphor for God's work because the fruits of that labor aren't just people, products, things. They're relationships. You know, no one gives birth uh, to a baby and says, look at this human. You know, this is Steve. Here, no, say, here's my son. Here's my daughter. Here's my grandson. Here's my granddaughter. Here's my niece. Here's my nephew. Children are born and they're defined from the very beginning by the network of relationships in which they are embedded. And so our work is relational. It's to create and cultivate, generate and foster relationships. That's where goodness, dignity, and purpose are found in our work, no matter where we are. And Peterson said Jesus gives us the best example of this, because Jesus did not have any children. And yet, he leads us to understand that the, the psalmist's sons and daughters, in terms representative of all intimate and personal relationships, because by his love, he made us his sons and daughters. And so by joining Jesus and, and, and the psalm, Peterson says, we learn a way of work that does not acquire things or amass possessions, but responds to God and develops relationships. People are at the center of Christian work. 
The character of our work is not shaped by accomplishments or possessions, but in the birth of relationships. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. We invest our energy in people. Among those around us, we develop sons and daughters, sisters and brothers, even as the Lord did with us. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of children. How blessed we are when our lives are filled with rich relationships. For it makes very little difference how much money Christians carry in their wallets or purses. It makes little difference how our culture values and rewards our work. For our work creates neither life nor righteousness. Relentless, compulsive work habits, anxious toil, which our society rewards and admires, are seen by the psalmist as a sign of weak faith and assertive pride, as if God could not be trusted to accomplish his will, as if we could rearrange the universe by our own effort. What does make a difference are the personal relationships that we create and cultivate and develop. We learn a name. We start a friendship. We follow up on a smile or maybe even a grimace. Nature is profligate with its seeds, scattering them everywhere. A few of them sprout. Out of the numerous handshakes and greetings, some germinate and grow into a friendship in Christ. Christian worship gathers the energy and focuses the motivation that transforms us from consumers who use work to get things into people who are intimate and in whom work is a way of being in creative relationship with one another. Such work can be done within the structure of any job, any career, any profession. And as Christians do the, tasks, uh, do the jobs and tasks assigned to them in what the world calls work, we learn to pay attention to and practice what God is doing in love and justice, in helping and healing, in liberating and cheering. Psalm 127 insists on a perspective in which our effort is at the periphery and God's work is at the center. And it invites us to imagine a reality, to participate in a reality where we can work for God in that way, in a godly manner, no matter what your job is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.